0: This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Basically. I am your host, Stephanie Prisner, and today in studio with me, I have Tom Clonan for the podcast that nobody wanted, but now everybody needs. Tom, tell us what is happening in Ukraine. Did you see it coming? Where did this come from? We all feel like we've been blindsided. Which is fine for us to say here in comfortable Ireland.
0: Yeah, it's the most depressing um, thing to discuss. And um, When you were in with us last, you did say that there would be a land war in Europe. Yeah, unfortunately. And it's something actually that was predicted by uh, Angela Merkel back in 2015 um, when she was writing the, the German uh, white paper on defence. She said that uh, for the first time uh, since the Second World War, borders within Europe would be shaped by ground offensives and land armies which is a, an unthinkable kind of concept but here we are and it's happened how was she able to predict that just because tensions were growing did she know it would be russia i think we've been looking at a period of of uh, growing instability worldwide i think the 21st century is one that has been characterized by i'm sorry to say it but preemptive invasion uh, we had the united states invasion of afghanistan in october 2002 and then the uh, invasions of Iraq and interventions in Syria and elsewhere. So it has been a very unstable couple of decades. And the global order has shifted. And actually, it's it's very relevant to what we're going to talk about today. So Afghanistan has a population of 40 million people.
1: How many does Ireland have?
0: Like six, five? Five, five okay. I think. So Afghanistan's got 40 million people. Uh, and after 20 years of occupation by NATO, doing their best to kind of promote democratic structures and promote the rights of women and girls and obviously you know they, there was a, there was collateral damage and there were casualties because of the military nature of that intervention but after 20 years last August they were effectively kicked out. It was a chaotic withdrawal.
1: Who withdrew them?
0: Um, the Taliban. Okay. So
1: Did, Was it not America saying like okay we're done here?
0: Not really no. I okay. mean I think the Taliban came into town in their pickup trucks and said guys show's over but if you look at uh, Iraq, then again, a population of 40 million uh, the United States and our allies went in, got rid of the Saddam Hussein's regime and then failed to rebuild or reconstruct that country and, and really could never leave the fortified green zone. You know, the only way they could travel around the country was in big reinforced convoys of tanks and armour with overhead cover. So here we are today, Ukraine, a population of 40 million exactly the same as Afghanistan, exactly the same as Iraq. And the Russians have invaded. Now, surely they can see Vladimir Putin benefited from NATO's failure in Afghanistan because Russia and China are now the power brokers in Central Asia. Russia benefited from the US failure in Iraq because Russia and Iran are now the power brokers in Tehran, Baghdad, Damascus, Beirut. So it doesn't make any sense to do what they have done, they, to repeat the mistakes of other countries that they have, that Vladimir Putin and Sergei Lavrov, his foreign minister, have benefited from. There's only one, I mean, there are a number of explanations as to why the Putin and his inner circle may have done this, but I think one the approach on Kiev, which is designed to take out uh, Vladimir Zelensky, that is based on uh fragile ego. You're 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 talking about the ego of an inadequate man who's provoked by Vladimir Zelensky and everything that he stands for. So
1: Putin is just like threatened by this
0: Absolutely. This is a, this president. is a purely vindictive move on his part. It serves no strategic purpose for Russia. And thousands, tens of thousands of people um are, are going to die as a consequence. They're going to lose their lives in the coming weeks. And um, it's completely unnecessary and completely avoidable. Can uh, we
1: come can, can we back to Ukraine and, but for a second, talk about NATO? Mm-hmm. So NATO is the North Atlantic
0: Tree, Treaty, Treaty organization. organization.
1: So it's uh, it's an organization, a military organization, no? Yeah, if it's a
0: military of? alliance. So basically NATO came into being after World War II. It's, it's sometimes called the Transatlantic Alliance. So it's a, a military coalition. Of
1: the UK. Between the United
0: US, States, the UK, Germany. and other European countries and Germany. And after the collapse of the former Soviet Union, um, a whole pile of former uh, satellite states of the Soviet Union, Poland, Lithuania, Estonia, they, they joined NATO. Uh, As and
1: protection against this sort of thing.
0: Yeah, and just, be I mean, it's their democratic uh, expression of their own will. You know, they wanted to join a military alliance because the the key, the unique selling point of NATO, if you like, is it's it's the mutual defence clause. So it's like if somebody attacks a NATO member, then all of the other allies are obliged to give military assistance and get together and, and fight whoever has attacked that person. Now, the Russians, and I think it's kind of useful to to try and think about this from the, the Russian perspective a lot of russian people uh regard nato as dangerous because they look at the evidence you know what has nato done in the 21st century uh, yeah so they went in after um, osama bin laden and Aymar, uh, oman uh, al zwahiri who were behind the 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 twin tower attacks but they so also so it's
1: sort of like afghanistan attacked america america is one of nato therefore all of nato countries are going to like NATO's going to go in and attack them?
0: Yeah, well, they did get a UN Security Council resolution and so NATO and its allies then, uh, led by the United States, intervened in, in Afghanistan to get rid of the Taliban. So I'm just trying to say, look, Let's look at this from the Russian perspective. It's not a defense of what Russia has done. What Russia has done is a war crime. There's no absolutely no doubt yeah. about it. They had no U.N Security Council resolution. They have no they have no reason to go into Ukraine. but they would regard NATO as a kind of a destabilizing, slightly dangerous force, they would regard the use of force by NATO as clumsy. So for example, in Libya, when NATO and its allies intervened to get rid of um, Gaddafi. That ended in in bloodshed Gaddafi's execution, summary execution on, on a camera phone, filmed on a camera phone. And he placed his body, placed on the bonnet of a car and driven through the town, you know, his bloodstained body. So in the 90s, Gorbachev, after Perestroika Glasnost, when they collapsed the Soviet Union, he got an assurance from the United States that NATO would never expand right up to Russia's border. Why? Because they understood the sensitivity that Russia had to that. Because in in the 20th century, you know, um, Russia was invaded from Europe, and millions, like literally 26 million uh, Soviet citizens, Russians, Belarusians, Ukrainians, uh, you know, were were killed. Uh, I, because When was this? Uh, in World War II. Okay. So so when they were invaded by by Germany. And and you know the the proxy forces that they gathered on their way as they went through that North European plain. So the Russians regard the North European plain as a very very sensitive point, and that's where Ukraine is. That's the it's the gateway to Russia, if you like, from Europe, and it's also the gateway to Europe from Russia. So it is a very very sensitive point. So up until now, Putin would have said, "Look, there are about five million Russian-speaking Ukrainians in the east in Donbas." in the provinces of Luhansk and Donetsk. And we want to protect them. Uh, And recently they declared themselves as, you know, independent Republic, People's Republic of Luhansk, independent People's Republic of Donetsk. So if you were to be really, I don't know, if you were to be really cynical, right, you, you could make the argument that Russia, you know, could have sent troops in there. They were invited in as peacekeepers apparently under this treaty of friendship that was drawn up between them and Vladimir Putin about two weeks ago. And based on the number of troops that Putin had that concentrated on the border with Ukraine, um, they had enough there to sort of reinforce and secure their foothold in Ukraine.
1: But like, was there, were Russians being attacked in Luhansk and Donetsk?
0: There are conflicting reports. And do you know what, Stephanie? I was in the former Yugoslavia just at the very end of that war. And there were genocidal attacks on both sides from 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 there were massacres of Serbs by Croatians, massacres of Croatians and Muslims and referred to as Bosniaks by by the Serbs on all sides. There were atrocities and there's always the risk um, Because of the manner in which um, Ukraine, the the ebb and flow of population over conflict, there was always the risk that ethnic Russian speakers could be targeted. I'm not aware that that happened. Um, But look, if you were really cynical, you you could say that uh, the Russians up to a point had a cause for concern as NATO moved east. But Ukraine was never going to become uh, a, a member of NATO.
1: Were they they not? Was that not what started all this? No.
0: So what has kicked this thing off is in 2008, NATO had a conference in Budapest back in 2008, April 2008. And President George Bush at that conference announced in his speech without consulting anybody, as a big surprise, he said, Ukraine and Georgia are going to be members of NATO in time. And this provoked... The Russians, uh, Vladimir Putin was just newly on the scene at the time in 2008. And four months later, in August of 2008, and at the time I was writing about it, the Russians told me they were presented unexpectedly with the prospect of a quick, winnable war. So they invaded Georgia without warning, without any um, sort of declaration. They went into Georgia in force. Now, they had 150,000 Russian troops, roughly, Georgians have a tiny army, about 10,000 troops. And they went in and the whole operation lasted less than 10 days. And in that period of time, they destroyed the Georgian army and they took one fifth of Georgia's territory as a buffer zone between Russia and Turkey, which is NATO's largest standing army is in Turkey. Job done. Okay, so here we are um, in 2022. Uh, the Russians decide that they want to possibly have create another similar buffer zone in Luhansk and Donetsk. Uh, And they could have done that by by negotiation with the independent people's republics of Luhansk and Donetsk. They could have done this around a table, in discussion. It didn't require the firing of one shot. It didn't require one person to cross a border. But instead of just now they've invaded the whole country they've pushed to kiev
1: but they're taking over the southern borders out like it doesn't it they've, seems... so they've,
0: they've three main prongs of attack they're coming in from belarus in the north that's this big 60 mile long convoy that's headed for kiev, kiev this the, the capital and then they have a push from crimea in the south up toward they're trying to create a land corridor between donetsk luhansk and, and the annexed um, okay. South Crime- Crimea Peninsula okay. and then they're coming in from Russia proper. So th- these are the three main axes of advance and really what they want to do is create a line north south from Kharkiv to Dniepro just east of the Dnieper River to c- kind of cut the country in two and create a massive buffer um, and to prevent Ukrainian counterattacks on I suppose Russian positions in in Luhansk and, and Donetsk. And do they want to do this like in perpetuity,
1: like to call this Russia again?
0: Well, I mean the commitment that they have started now, you know, already I mean the Russians have stated that they've lost I think 400 troops killed in action, uh 1 one and a half thousand injured. Mm-hmm. The Ukrainians claim 10 times that. They say that they've killed four and a half thousand Russian troops. So the the truth is probably somewhere in in between. So they've probably lost about two and a half thousand of their young people now. So so it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, for um, Vladimir Putin, given that fragile ego that sort of historic sense of mission to he's restore he's not going to just stand he's not back, going to back now. down because and he and people in the west you know they've made the observation that the invasion has been slow and faltering and that russia is failing that is going to really provoke putin and putin i'm sorry to say this he is going to try, as he would see it he's going to try and teach the ukrainians and the rest of the world a lesson
1: so he, he will stop at nothing
0: and the people who will pay the price for that are the the women and children and the people who are who are left behind in ukraine the people who are stuck in those cities the the initial air phase of the conflict is has has drawn to a close so the air strikes and missile strikes throughout ukrainian territory to take out their infrastructure their air defense assets their air, aircraft the russians now have they say complete air superiority in ukraine and that means that they can bring their armour and their ground forces, their armoured fighting vehicles, their tanks into the cities to hold them. And So
1: because they're not afraid of being attacked from, from above.
0: From the air, no. Now, I think that what, what remains of the Ukrainian military and the resistance is extraordinary. They're fighting to stop that from happening. But what's going to happen next is the Russians have a choice, uh, or rather the Ukrainians have a choice. Do they try and prevent the Russians from getting into cities like Kharkiv? and uh, Kiev, you know, and create big sieges like we saw in the Bosnia conflict that uh, places like Sarajevo, the siege of Sarajevo or the siege of Mostar. Well, that means the population gets starved. So they just... And they're cut off of the water and they hold the population as hostage until eventually they try to get them to surrender.
1: They're doing that in... Is it Mariupol now that is? Yeah, and
0: it's going to deteriorate very quickly. The other thing the Ukrainians have is to let the Russians come into the cities and then destroy their tanks and their armoured fighting vehicles and begin what's called urban combat and fight from house to house, street to street. And that's the type of thing we haven't seen in in Europe since World War II. It's, this is like, it would be like Stalingrad.
1: So who, like, if that is the way that it went, who would be, um, like, who would be, who'd win that?
0: Eventually the Russians would win, but in doing so, they would have to destroy each of those cities, Kharkov, Kharkiv, Kiev, um, Dinepro and all the other, Mariupol. And by destroying they will kill thousands and thousands of people who are trapped there. Now, I've seen this at first hand in 1996 uh, as a peacekeeper in Lebanon. The Israelis mounted what they called a punitive operation against the people of South Lebanon. It was called Operation Grapes of Wrath. And they subjected all of the towns and villages and the little places in our area of operations to constant airstrikes, helicopter gunship attacks, tank attacks, artillery, mortars, missiles. This went on for four weeks and the unit history and the UN history records uh, up to, I think it was about thirty or 40,000 separate such attacks in, in, in a couple of weeks. In that, what period. were you able to do for that? So we were just human shields. We were stuck in there. We were subject to the same um, onslaught. But what my job as Uh, I was in charge of what was called the the armoured element. So we provided security for the engineers who would go out with their diesel generators and with consoles, we'd cut down into the wreckage of houses and bring out the bodies of elderly people, grandparents, people with disabilities, uh, young mothers, infants. And in that scenario, this is the urban environment, The impact of high explosives on people in buildings, families is limb separation, decapitation, horrific soft tissue injuries, burns. Um, It's just indescribable. And that had that had such a huge impact on me as a person. And I know that all of us who were there, 600 Irish people who who witnessed that and experienced it and were part of the effort to bring those people, to bring out the bodies um, from the rubble. And it culminated in a massacre of of over 100 people in our neighbouring UN position in a place called Kwana. And that's what is going to happen to the people in Kharkiv, in Kiev. I mean, obviously... um. Half a million people are on the move from Ukraine. But I know from that experience, not everybody can leave. There will be thousands and thousands of civilians who can't leave. People who have an elderly or a sick relative. Um, People who just have nowhere to go, who don't have the means to leave. People with disabilities, people in hospitals. There will be tens of thousands of people. Kiev has a population of three million people. The the vast majority of those people are trapped. And we're about to witness... uh, one of the biggest war crimes of the 21st century because when you invade a country under the Geneva Conventions and the laws of armed conflict the invading party, Russia has an obligation to provide humanitarian evacuation routes these are safe evacuation routes from the cities that they're going to attack they have to allow the civilian population to leave they have to provide a safe haven for them to go to where they will be fed where their medical needs would be. Look, this is all in international law but to, it's which, not happening. to which Russia is a signatory. And they're not doing that. They're not letting the people leave. They're bombing indiscriminately. Um, and we've seen from Russia's intervention in Syria, um, Amnesty International. Uh, all of the international um, agencies have confirmed that Russia deliberately targeted hospitals and other civilian targets in sorry, Syria. So, when
1: did Russia get involved in Syria?
0: Um, so they got involved in support of the Assad regime from about, uh, over about the last six or seven years.
1: So they were supporting the bad guy, sorry to be simple yeah, about it. Yeah, but like-
0: Bashar al-Assad and his, his regime. Uh, and they were fighting the insurgency and they also engaged some of the Islamic State uh, forces that were there too. And got involved in urban combat. So who was with them. fighting against them? So some the 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 resistance to Assad's regime.
1: So it's the Syrian civil like just
0: yeah, it's such a, it's complicated. Yes, but, okay. but there were a number of other parties involved. So the Islamic State also set up a rival caliphate in the in the region. So the Russians got involved with but them. But no too, other sort of like NATO territories got involved. No, in that and and that was an interesting thing. So they they had a mutual kind of exclusion zone to make sure that U.S. troops and uh, British troops, French troops, didn't didn't interact with the um, with the Russians in Syria. So here, here we are today. Now, the, the, the reason why I bring up the experience of Lebanon, like in the last couple of days, I've heard a number of Irish politicians suggest that um, Ireland should join a military alliance because of what's happening in Ukraine. And I, I would fundamentally disagree with that. I think if Ireland joins um, NATO, because that's the military alliance they're talking about, there are some people in Fine Gael who really want this. The MEPs in Fine Gael have put out a position document where they say we should become, we should join NATO. The minute Ireland joins NATO, we will become invisible. We will become completely and utterly irrelevant because we will become like not point, not one percent of NATO's but strength. Don't, don't so, you
1: want to be invisible in a war, so like people well, aren't going to attack us?
0: At the moment, we we have an independent voice and we can use that at the UN security council to try and bring about negotiations aren't
1: we the head of the UN security council at we're moment? not
0: the head of it but we're 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 a temporary member of it and we have we have a voice and we have never invaded another country so we have the moral authority to speak to all sides and that doesn't prevent us from supplying aid to ukraine it doesn't prevent us from sending weapons it doesn't prevent us from sending whatever assistance we want but i'm just saying we should not join a military alliance at this time. Should we send weapons? Yes, we should. Does that compromise our neutrality? No, it wouldn't. Because we've had troops in Afghanistan. We've had troops in Kosovo supporting NATO. We've had troops then in the Central African Republic and Chad using peace enforcement to try and help bring an end to conflict. So I think we just need, this is a time for cool heads because as the weapons from the European Union and from other NATO member states go into Ukraine in the coming weeks, um, they'll have to go by land. So they'll go over the border from Poland. And as soon as um, the Russians experience losses inflicted on them by these weapon systems coming in from Europe, they'll then target um, the border crossings and a city like Lviv in the west of Ukraine, because they'll see that as a distribution point for for European weapons and European weapon systems. And then there's the risk of the Russians hitting, you know, Polish border guards or something on the border with Slovakia or Hungary or Romania. And then you're into open confrontation with NATO and escalation into a European war or people are saying, you know, World War, that would be the beginning of World War Three, do you think that will happen? I think there's a there's a possibility that it could escalate. So I, I'm thinking of a number of scenarios. I mean, I can't I can't emphasise this enough. There are people in in buildings and basements in Ukraine now who are running out of water, who are running out of food and medical supplies, civilians. And um, so there's been a big focus on the Ukrainian military, and that's understandable. And they and they they will, I think, try to defend their cities. I think. Um, Vladimir Putin had had gambled on Zelensky fleeing the country as soon as they came across the border, but he didn't. And if Zelensky had left, perhaps the Ukrainian military would have just folded. Mm -hmm. But they didn't and they're going to fight now. And every day that they continue this fight, I think they'll be even more determined to continue it. Unfortunately, that defense, well, rather the attacks by the Russians will result in the destruction of those cities. So there's been a focus on the military. But really, the the real story here is all of the civilians that are trapped there. Now, they've already committed a number of war crimes by not putting in place these evacuation corridors. That is to say, the Russians, by targeting infrastructure in in heavily built up urban environments under the wars, under the laws of war, you're not allowed to do that it's it's strictly but and like explicitly this, prohibited. It
1: just seems bananas that there are laws of war. Like surely the first law of war should be like there is no war. Stop
0: Absolutely, it. Absolutely yeah. There shouldn't. <laughs> like obvi-
1: I just mean isn't it obvious that like if he's willing to go into a country and invade it and take it over he doesn't care about rules. Like he's obviously not no, going and, to be like. And,
0: and their, their strategic objectives that's why I was trying to say if you look at this from, from Russia's perspective their strategic objectives could have been achieved without firing one shot. The only thing that I can explain this uh, is, you know, a historic sense of mission on Putin's part to kind of extend Russia's borders back to the way they were prior to the Soviet Union or during the Soviet Union. It's kind of, it's just megalomania. It's a grab for power. And Is there status.
1: any analogy with um, Ireland, Northern Ireland and the UK in terms of like this occupied area
0: no, because the Ukraine, you know, y- you're talking about this, the history of Ukraine and Russia. You're talking about like millions and millions of people dying in Ukraine and in Russia. Like it's it's apocalyptic right, compared okay. and, and unlike um, the situation between Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, and that has improved hugely, thankfully. But Russia and Ukraine are you know, they're like-minded, they're naturally allies and friends. Um, but
1: did that change when this actor became president and sort of like turned no, to the no, West? This
0: this, is, this this changed when Vladimir Putin set his sights on, on Ukraine. Okay. It's pure and simple. I mean, uh, one good piece of analysis I read was, you know, it's pointless trying to understand Vladimir Putin as a, as a kind of a, as a rational sort of national leader he's he's like um the schoolyard bully and unfortunately um he's picked on ukraine it's their turn and if he gets away with this um he'll he'll pick on somebody else
1: taking a break from the episode to bring you an ad because this podcast is only possible because of our sponsor supporting our sponsor supports the podcast And let me tell you about who they are. Rockwell's financial planning service is designed for anyone who feels as if they kind of need to just put a shape on their finances. I don't know if you're like me, you kind of feel like, oh my finances are all over the place, I need to kind of start adulting, this is the service for you. Whether you're like a senior executive in a multinational company or a small business owner or just a young couple looking to get a head start in your financial planning, a single person who wants to make plans for their future, So they consider themselves financial doers rather than financial planners, which I really like because it's active. It's not just like um, Namby Pamby sort of making a plan. doesn't matter where you are in the country. They're happy to help you in person or over Zoom. Pensions and investments are really important, but they're absolutely useless without knowing why you're using them and what you're using them for. They are in the outcomes business. They are in the business of results. So it's not just about the plan. It's about the action. So they use this like award winning investment advice to help their clients achieve their goals. And they have a special offer for you listening right now for basically listeners. If you go to rockwellfinancial.ie forward slash basically, you can book a complimentary financial planning session today you'll get a cash flow model which outlines any gaps in your finances and they'll give you the first steps to achieving your specific goals. I highly recommend Rockwell and I think as a Basically listener, you should definitely check it out. It's free. It's going to put you on the right path to getting your finances in order. That's it. Go to rockwellfinancial.ie forward slash basically. So while I have you, I'm going to take the opportunity to um, take you hostage for a minute and tell you about the merchandise that we are selling. We have notebooks and pens which are branded with the basically branding and you should buy them. You should buy them because it's a lovely notebook. Who doesn't need a notebook? If you are a Headstuff podcast member, if you buy the notebook, you get the pen for free. It supports me, it supports the podcast, it supports the producers, the people who work on the show and means that we can continue to make these podcasts and give them to you for free. If you want to become a Headstuff podcast member, if you get a lot from the podcast and you think, God, I'd like to support Stephanie and the podcast, you can become a Headstuff podcast member for five euro plus that. uh, Or you can give more if you want to go to headstuffpodcast.com and you can click register there and you pick a podcast. You can pick up to three podcasts. If you pick three podcasts, what happens there is that the five euro that you're giving gets split between the three podcasts that you're supporting. Or you can pick just one podcast. Say you pick my podcast, then you'll get my bonus material for free and all of the bonus material for all of the other podcasts on the network. So it's a really, really good deal. Five euro, all of these special podcasts. So if you want to do that, do it. I'll be very, very grateful. The people who are in the community, the Headstuff podcast members are my favorite people. They support the podcast. They mean that you can listen to this podcast for free. It's five euro a month. I'm going to stop talking now, but I really appreciate your support. Thank you. Oh, and also, if you cannot afford to support the podcast, but you want to support the podcast, you can also give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, leave us a good review, or share the podcast with two other people. That's it. Just send the podcast to two other people who will listen to it, who you think will benefit from it. That helps to get our listeners up, which helps us get sponsorship. It's all how it works. And uh, yeah, I'd be really grateful if you do that too. Bye. The Podcast Studios is the home of the Headstuff Podcast Network. It's where lots of our shows are recorded and we work on editing, promotion, videos, live shows and lots more. As a podcast production company with three state-of-the-art studios for audio and video in Dublin city centre, we can work with you to tell great stories in a professional and engaging way. From government organizations to charities, arts groups to international brands, entrepreneurs to hobbyists, we've worked with everybody and we can help you to get the word out. Whether you need studio time, you're hosting a live stream or webinar, or you need support with editing or marketing, we can tailor a package for you. For more info, head to thepodcaststudios.ie. But how does he not, like, how do we stop him? How does so, one stop so him that's getting
0: So that's a very interesting question. How, you know, so some analysts are saying that what's happening now is that, so Vladimir Putin thought that Ukraine would collapse and that he would have, like in Georgia... That quick victory, you know, ten days, two weeks, a month, they'd have Ukraine. Um,
1: that could still happen, though. It's only been
0: going a week. Yeah, but they they didn't they, ex- really they didn't anticipate the, the the deaths, okay, and the casualties. And I I don't think this is going to end well at all. Um. So, as the sanctions begin to bite, and I mean, you saw all the airspace is closed to Russian a- aircraft. Yeah. So and all
1: just for people listening, all of the like, so many countries have now said like. Russia you're not allowed to fly over our country you're not allowed to land in our country Mm. Um, just while you've been on air Formula One have cut ties completely with I mean it's a minor thing but like a lot of sporting organisations have cut ties with Russia um, and they've sanctioned the SWIFT system for some of the banks but it just feels like Putin doesn't care about any of this it's just going to make life miserable for Russians Yeah
0: so and that's always been the case he doesn't I mean he's put his troops you know into a a highly contaminated area (laughs) he he doesn't care and you can see people in Russia protesting like Putin won't be here forever. Russia hopefully will. Ukraine hopefully will. And there are the people of the Russian people are are great people. They're wonderful people, as are the people in Ukraine and people in Russia have been protesting. This is down to Putin and the inner circle who enable him. The top generals, people like Gerasimov and others, people like Sergei Lavrov and the oligarchs who have robbed Russia of its natural resources and its wealth. At the, at the expense of its people. But their private jets can't go anywhere now. They can't go to Monaco. They can't go to London. They can't go to Paris anymore. So they're going to start looking at Putin and, and beginning to plan for his succession because he may at this point have become somewhat of an inconvenience and somewhat embarrassing because for Putin, there was no retirement plan. The guy is, I think he's turning 70. Mm-hmm. He has made a lot of enemies. I'm sure he's thinking about, well, what happens next? And for people like Putin, you know, they seem absolutely impregnable. I'm sure you've seen the footage of him in the Kremlin, you know, sitting at the head of like ridiculously long Long tables Um, and people coming in and being intimidated and humiliated ritually by him. And people like that, they look really powerful. And but when it unravels, it unravels very, very quickly.
1: You know, the way in like previous wars, like we'll talk about Iraq and Afghanistan, we just did that, like the leader of these movements became the target. So Osama bin Laden became the target. Hmm. Um, you know is there an a, a version of this where actually people turn to be like, we just need to get rid of him. Like we need to kill him or we need to like will that stop it?
0: Well I think I think that has to happen from within his own
1: yes, I mean, inner in, in yeah.
0: circle. I mean I think if, if if any Western actor, any Western entity was to try and, and, and do that, I think it would have the effect of making Vladimir Putin very 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 popular yeah and, and it would it would have probably have the opposite effect than that intended uh, look, i mean th- this is such a bleak, depressing um conversation that we're having. My own personal view is that vladimir putin i think he fa- i think he was surprised initially that Zelensky and his cabinet didn't run. I think he's very provoked by Zelensky's public statements and his, because Zelensky looks like a man. He's amazing. He's so inspirational. He he looks like the opposite of what Vladimir Putin is. And I come back to the thing he is an inadequate, this is the kind of, unfortunately, the type of male toxic masculinity you know, male leader that we have, that unfortunately we have in the world. There's a, there's a whole pile of them.
1: Does he have family? Does he have a wife? Does he have kids?
0: He ha- he has a daughter, yeah. He's got family. Christ. And you, you know, look, so, so there he is. Um, he, I think, was probably very angry that his military were making slow progress so there's no way he's going to negotiate now because he would lose face But he so, is
1: doing peace talks isn't he or well they, he did yesterday I mean
0: yeah because look th- there were talks on the border with uh, Belarus that you know amounted to nothing because you know Putin wasn't there and neither was Lavrov or any of the top people look my, my awful feeling about this is that Putin is going to get his army his little dinky toys to go in and kill an awful lot of people And when he's when he when he when he when he feels that he has taught them enough of a lesson, he might then be persuaded to say, "Okay, now I'll be magnanimous. Now I'll show mercy and go back to the negotiating table. Imagine that's 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 the that's the hope that one might have. But I think that in the next week to 10 days, we are going to see something happen in Ukraine a mass casualty incident, a catastrophe of such scale and proportion that the whole world is going to turn to Putin and say, please just stop this. There'll be a clamour for a ceasefire.
1: But aren't people already saying that?
0: If you look at previous conflicts, it takes a kind of a certain critical mass. It takes a kind of a tipping point for people to come to their senses. And I think I think that will, hap- that, that will happen. Do you think
1: it's only when his oligarchs are like, give me back my money and my private there's, jet?
0: So there's, that's the... The pressure from within the Kremlin and then on the battlefield, such as it is in Ukraine, the price for this is going to be paid by children, infants, you know, the elderly civilians, the Russian troops that have been thrown into this, the, all those young men and, and women uh, and the Ukrainians. I mean, this thing is what what I find so tragic and unspeakable about all of this is that it is completely and utterly unnecessary. It is an act of vanity. It's an it's an act of evil. It's it's a vanity project for 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 Putin. It's a gamble that he took because they were emboldened by their success in Central Asia. They were emboldened by their success in the Middle East Lavrov and Putin, Sergei Lavrov as his foreign minister have been a very very, if you look at it from their point of view, a very impressive double act over the last 10 years. and they have been kind of like high on this success. and but the the, the, the move on Kiev is, is is malicious. It's driven by malice.
1: Like, I was reading before Christmas, um, I remember I was writing some of my articles for the Sunday Independent before Christmas that were going to come out just kind of after Christmas and I was like, God, I wonder what I'll write about. And my friend Cahill, who's actually going out with a Moldovan, um, he was like, oh, the Russians have invaded Ukraine. And I was like, what's going on there? And he was like, well, you know, like he's amassing troops on the border. This was back in December. um, And I was like, what's going to happen there? And he was like, oh, probably nothing. Like, I mean, I don't know. Now, he's not an expert in anything, but... um the fact that this has been going on for so long and that he t- it took him so long to gather all those troops did that make people underestimate that he actually ever would pull the trigger or was that actually increasing alarm for people
0: you see the the problem most and i was writing about it myself since since last year and and we all predicted that he would s- consolidate his hold of luhansk and donetsk or the donbass region and i writing in the journal predicted that they might try to create a land corridor between South Crimea and Russian territory through Luhansk and Donetsk. Because based on the number of troops that they had, I I think everybody, the Ukrainians themselves were ta- and the Russians, the Russian people were taken by surprise when the Russians and, and, and the Kremlin, Vladimir Putin, decided to attack Kiev because it, it just... It doesn't make any sense. Again, it's a population of forty-five million people. You cannot, in the twenty-first century, you cannot occupy a country of forty-five million people. We know this. You, we couldn't. It couldn't be done in Afghanistan, forty million people. It couldn't be done in Iraq, forty million people. It, it's just impossible. You can't do it. All what you can do though is you can destroy the country and kill. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. You can do that and you can create a refugee crisis of, you know, millions of people on the move. The uh, UNHCR, the Red Cross estimate that up to five or six million Ukrainians are going to flee to Central Europe.
1: If they can get out.
0: If they they can get out. And like, so the difficulty in predicting that is that it just it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. That's
1: why it's so bizarre because you don't suit. know like what does he want like it makes no sense and until like if he wants the reinstate like to reinstate what Russia used to be then he's not going to stop at Ukraine because there's so many other countries that used to be part of Russia but the minute he crosses one of those borders into NATO then NATO are going to kick back and and then we're into a really serious yeah so so the, so right
0: the whole the, I mean all all I would hope is that at some point the the world will come to its senses. In, in the sense that Putin's inner circle, the people who enable him, the top generals. Now, I would never look to the military for moral courage. That's been my life experience. There's no moral courage there whatsoever. There's no ethical formation at all in the military, generally speaking. So I wouldn't expect any kind of resistance to Putin's moves to come from the generals. They seem to have been quite happy to follow his insane orders. And we've seen that with previous leaders in in previous times. The move hopefully would come from people with political uh, influence in Russia and some of the oligarchs who have institutional, organizational and, you know, power of wealth and business that they might say, look, you know, this is not good for Russia, which it isn't. Um, Unfortunately, their system is such that the street protests won't make any difference, really. Um, but these inner circle, hopefully. But are
1: these people even seeing? Like, are Russian people actually seeing what's happening? Well, because I think I like think
0: th- I think the oligarchs and the, the powerful, you know, the, the, they they they're they're wealthy and they they know exactly what's going on. Okay. And that that would be the hope. But in the meantime, the price is being paid by innocent civilians in Ukraine who are in an impossible situation and the um you know the russian soldiers that have been sent in there who i'm sure um you know have been fed a concoction of propaganda and lies um it's it's just i, I can't believe we're having this conversation really because the 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 threat of escalation and the fact that putin Introduced into the rhetoric, um, the threat of a of, nuclear. A, of a nuclear a tactical nuclear exchange is just um, like we shouldn't we shouldn't be here. Like after COVID, we were all thinking, "Great, we can get back to our normal lives," and and then suddenly we're confronted with this.
1: Do you think he will go nuclear? I
0: I or think, you think it is an idle so. Threat? So if you look at the man, he he's so unpredictable. Uh, when when he started, uh, when he took over, uh, when he assumed power in Russia. Diplomats at the time uh, described him as being very charismatic um, very personable, very, very friendly. But within a couple of years, um, I think it was one of the former UK ambassadors to Moscow described meeting um, Putin in the Kremlin. And when Putin walked down the corridor, people in the corridor had to sort of stand with their backs to the wall and bow their heads as he walked past. So this person who had originally been a very charismatic, uh, intelligent, um, erudite individual has become more and more grandiose, more and more narcissistic, more and more sort of um, inflexible. And the people around him, um, he has kind of culled the people around him so that he's just surrounded now by yes men, mostly men, very few women. So you'll have seen the footage of, of people you know, interacting with him in the Kremlin. And and they look absolutely terrified of the man. So he is now in a space politically, personally, psychologically, where he's not hearing any constructive criticism. He's not getting any constructive feedback. Nobody has had the moral courage to say to him, stop this. This is wrong. So could a person like that order a nuclear exchange? Yes, I think he could. Um would the Russian missile forces actually execute that order? I don't. I would hope not. I would hope that that would be a point where resistance would begin. Um, I, I, I just can't see it.
1: So you mean he'd say to someone like press the button and they'd say I'm not pressing it.
0: Yeah. But, you know, the fear would be that you'll have one willing, willing fool who'll do it. You know, in the, I mean, because then it's game over if he if he fires a tactical nuclear weapon. You know what, there, what happens then? Well, there would be a response from. Well, it depends. I mean, my my instinct would be that if if Putin was to fire a, nu- a nuclear a tactical nuclear missile, he would fire it at Poland. It would be somewhere on that border with Poland, because he he has a sort of um, an irrational hatred of the Polish people. And again, that's bound up and rooted in, in in history between the two countries.
1: So then he does that, but Poland is in NATO, isn't it? Yeah.
0: So then it's anyone's guess as to where the retaliation, but it would be it would be quick and it would be decisive because, and and then you have the risk of mutually assured destruction. Because when people think of nuclear weapons, they probably think of something like you know uh, Nagasaki, Hiroshima, but they they were atomic bombs. They weren't nuclear weapons. That that even the smallest nuclear weapons. Tactical nuclear weapons that that are in Russia or the United States or any of the other nuclear—they're like hundreds of times more powerful and more destructive than Hiroshima, exactly. Yeah, and would contaminate the the area that they were fired into. You know, you, you know, the size of a country, like would contaminate an area like that for hundreds of years, and it would be the end of um, Europe as we know it. It would be the end of. This phase of 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 human civilization as we know it. So that's where we are. We're at this really really dangerous moment, and we have been propelled into this by by the ego uh, of, of one man. And but what really makes me angry is there are men and women around him who could put a stop to this. And you know who has the moral courage to step forward and say enough?
1: But sure, yeah, he'd probably just kill them.
0: Well, there should be. I mean, what's the alternative? Like we're all gone. Like, you know, if you you do the zero sum game on it, like we're all going to suffer. All of us, all of our children, our grandchildren. So, you know, you have to. That's what moral courage is all about. And we're the only species on the planet that's capable of existential altruistic action. Like you think of people in, in our past in Ireland who were prepared to put everything on the line, put their lives on the line. Um, but you
1: see that with the Ukrainians like at Dublin airport being like, I have to go back yeah, and fight. Yeah, and,
0: and that's what would, would, would give you hope because I think the the flight of Zelensky and the evaporation of Ukrainian resistance that he was hoping for hasn't happened. And you know, if that had happened, we'd have a period of about four or five years of, getting used to the idea that there was a puppet regime in in Kiev, But the next thing would be he would move on the Baltic states because he would be emboldened emboldened by his success as he would see it. So unfortunately, we all have to take a stand. And that's why I'd say, you know, I don't think we should join a military alliance. (laughs) We don't have anything to contribute to a military alliance anyway. But should we send weapons to Ukraine? Yes, we should. And today, not tomorrow or the next day.
1: What are we sending at the moment? We're just, we're not sending deadly weapons, but we're sending fuel to... I I
0: think money, money for fuel and money for... But I mean, that comes off the top line of the budget anyway. So, you know, it's all part of the same logistical effort. Um, It's, uh, again, I think hopefully when we come out onto the other side of this... When do you think that'll be? Well, as soon as... I, I can't see any alternative to succession... Um, in, in the Kremlin. Because I think Vladimir Putin is a man who's not for turning and he showed that quite clearly in the decisions that he's taken. The, I think at a certain point he has he has departed from the, the reality on the ground. There is no strategic advantage to Russia for, in this.
1: So it's going to have to be from inside Russia for someone it's, to it's say? It's going to have to be, enough. yeah,
0: because the alternative would be a wider confrontation with NATO. Is and, it possible
1: for Ukraine to overtake, like to to beat Russia in this on their own?
0: I think to answer that question, you'd have to look at the history. So look at what happened in Afghanistan. So no. The United States came in, they destroyed the Taliban and their hold on, on, on the country. But then they were then faced with an incremental insurgency that went on for 20 years and cost the US trillions of dollars. Same in Iraq, you know, an insurgency that began as soon as they got rid of Saddam Hussein. And that's what will happen in Ukraine if if in the coming weeks Putin destroys these cities and holds the country at gunpoint. Well, then the next thing that will happen is the insurgency will start and weapons will flow into Ukraine from all around the world through Europe, across all the land borders. And it'll be impossible to stop that. And it'll cost Russia billions and billions of dollars. It'll cost them their young people. It'll cost Putin support at home. It'll cost it, because it has that conflict that he has started now has the potential to destroy all parties to the conflict. It can just des- it'll destroy Ukraine. Certainly he can do that. But that war of attrition that will follow has the capacity or the potential to destroy Russia itself.
1: OK, so last word. What's going to happen?
0: I really hope I, I think what's going to happen. I'm sorry to say this and i'm sorry to everybody listening to this we're going to see uh, a humanitarian c- catastrophe in the coming week to t- coming weeks and we're going to see thousands of people lose their lives unnecessarily and that may bring about uh, a ceasefire at some point maybe a return to negotiations that's the best we can hope for tom. that's that's the best
1: tom clonan thank you so much for that grim news um but really really helpful to have it explained in those ways and um yeah, I just feel like there's nothing we can do. Like, what can we do? What can people listening do? Like, donate to UNICEF? I know, I've heard a lot of people saying that, you know, that people are doing these collections of food and nappies and clothes and other people are saying, please don't send actual things. They're really hard to distribute and it's, it's really ineffective. It's a good
0: question because I've seen this now at uh, first hand. You, you just think about it yourself. You've got 24 hours to leave your home and you're on the road. I mean, at the moment, people are stuck at the Polish border for 60 hours just to get across. What they need is money. They need money for continental Europe to supply them. Like all of the aid agencies know what they need. They know where to get it. And all they need is the money to pay for it. So don't Sen- sending Sending things. trucks and vans full of nappies and blankets. That creates a logistical nightmare for the recipients. They don't know how do they unpack it? Who do they give it to? How do they? The, the, the way to help our Ukrainian brothers and sisters is to send money. And I would say to the government, you know, wake up. This is not just a war on Ukraine. This is a war on Europe and all of the values and the things that we stand for. I mean, you and I mightn't like Mikhail Martin or Leo Varadkar. We mightn't like Boris Johnson, but they they can be removed at the next election. Like, we have a wonderful thing, even though we complain about it. Like, we have freedom. We have democracy. What Vladimir Putin, his vision for the world is absolute domination by little inadequate men like him It's uh, and his cronies. That's, we're not, I I wouldn't live in that way. So I would say to the Irish government, send the weapons, send money, send whatever they need. And for Irish citizens is, you know, send Send money money
1: and don't join NATO. Tom Clonan, thank you so much. And thank you for listening to another episode of Basically. I hope you found it helpful, if not a little bit depressing. Um, Our music is by Only Ruin. Our graphic design is by Cahal O'Gara. We're produced by Julie Hassett and we are part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. See you next week.